It reminds me for some reason of us or me recording vocals without my shirt on, insisting that you'd be able to hear it. (laughs) You can hear it. I can still hear it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, and general complainers tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as mortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So I'm going to give some history on the artist, on the album, and do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks. And at the end, we'll all vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. As usual, we want to thank you for inviting us into your ears for the next hour or so, and I wanted to open the episode with some advice for any up-and-coming bands that might be listening. If you're ever negotiating with a group of lawyers from a record company, and your drummer, of all people, storms out of the room, follow him. (laughs) Now, obviously, you know from reading the title of this episode, this week we're talking about a band called The Electric Prunes, a name which, according to the lead singer, it's not attractive, there's nothing sexy about it, but people won't forget it, which is also something I heard the night I lost my virginity. All right, so anyway, my name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years, played professionally for over a decade, and today I'm going to be leading us through the debut album from the psychedelic garage band from the 1960s called The Electric Prunes. So let's jump right into the music by listening to the opening track off of the 1967 album The Electric Prunes. This song is called I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night. Okay, there you have it. We got a little flavor of what we're going to encounter on this album, that sweet, sweet psychedelic rock. So let's throw it around the studio for some introductions and those tweet length reviews. Let's go to Rob first. Yeah, thanks, Adam. My tweet length review is the debut record from the psych pioneers, the electric prunes slid right in through my ear holes and right out the other side. Uh, Phil, what's your tweet review? Yeah, so, uh, hi everybody, Phil here. So, you know, in listening to the Electric Prince this week, you know, I-, I was left with the question, right? Which is, can an album that influenced the Rolling Stones, the Who, maybe even the Beach Boys, and therefore downstream bands like Elvis Costello, maybe even Ty Seagal and Tame Apollo, can that suck? Can that be bad? <laughs> and that's really what I think the Electric Prince looked to test on their debut release. And terrible lyrics. Terrible <laughs> <lyrics>. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm very happy to welcome back friend of the show and regular guest, Marty. Take it away. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me on again. My tweet length review is the electric prunes are essentially the Beach Boys answer to the Velvet Underground. 
Their debut album is full of fuzzed out psychedelic jams that stand alone nicely, but together fail to deliver a consistent message and lack insight into who they are as a band other than a memorable name. Nice, nice. All right. Mm, Fair enough, yeah. This is Adam. My tweet is that for an album that clocks in at only 29 minutes, it felt less like a dream and more like a nightmare from which I couldn't wake up. (laughs) I think we're all in agreement. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's start off this week and talk a little bit about psychedelic music. I've never really liked psychedelic rock this week, kind of only confirmed it, but we have hit a couple psychedelic albums in the last hundred or so episodes. We did The Zombies way back in episode 14, which came out in 1968. It was an album called Odyssey and Oracle. I don't know if I'd call that psychedelic, but it's in that vein. And then just a few episodes ago, we reviewed that album Love, which I think was self-described as psychedelic. And so it's hard to pick a single album that was the start of psychedelic music or psychedelic rock, just like it's very hard to pick the first rock album or rock song. Although similar to, what was it, Rocket 88 from Ike Turner, you know, in 1957, I know that was hailed as, as potentially the start of rock and roll. But the idea of psychedelic music really stems from just hallucinogens in the 1960s and how popular they were in the the music culture. So the idea of altering your perception of reality, detaching from the physical world and, and physical time constraints, that's all baked in. And when you do that, you need a soundtrack for your experience. And so you're, we're hearing a lot of fuzz guitars, sound effects, lots of delay and long instrumental jams. Can we talk a little bit more about what is and what is not psychedelic rock? Because I feel like this is a grossly perhaps not misunderstood term, but yeah, what does it even refer to? Just that the people who are playing the music took LSD? Is that it? <laughs> Potentially. And when? When did they take the LSD? I don't think that... I read an article with one of the prunes, and he said they weren't into drugs at all. They were anti-psychedelia. They, they noted that they weren't able to... Basically, they couldn't do it. They didn't have the the structure. They didn't have tour buses. They didn't have all the the apparatus in place to allow them to just do drugs and jam. They actually had to like rehearse. <laughs> oh, hold on a second. I've uh, I've done some drugs and you don't need app- apparatus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I see it as like the musical imp- interpretation of a lava lamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. But I, so I think, yeah, maybe... To, to be a little bit more expansive with the definition, like maybe what it's referring to is the idea that psychedelics, which came into widespread popularity right in the mid, early to mid 60s and stayed popular, they expanded people's ideas of what was possible. And so it's just kind of become shorthand for anything that feels a little experimental for its time. And in that definition, I think this probably fits into it, but it's certainly not what people would call psych rock today. Yeah, I I feel like at the time, if you had delay on your guitar, you had tremolo on your guitar, along with a maybe a couple of backwards tape effects. That was like, all right, you're in, you're psychedelic. That's a, that's a stamp it, print it, done. This has a lot of like the pre Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd sensibilities, like very early Pink Floyd, like saucer full of secrets and. Uh, that's a good point. 
bad, bad mixing. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the mixing is completely insane, right? They're just like, that'll be all the way on the left. That'll be all the way on the right. The drum set, we'll just spread that all over the place. Who cares? Well, right? just, also, I think Jimi Hendrix falls into the definition, as we just described it, of psychedelic music. And I'm sure Adam would agree he likes Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, very good point. All right. So whenever we talk about anything prior to 1970, it gets a little fuzzy for me. So as we walk through the history of the electric prunes, I'm going to be placing different, you know, monumental or, or different important albums along the way, sort of as a musical breadcrumb to keep ourselves oriented. But now to start off with the history here, I want to start with the producer of the album because he's, he's got a very interesting story as it relates to the prunes. It's a guy named Dave Hassinger. Not a ton of info on him, but he was born in L.A. He fought in World War II. After the war, he gets a job as a staff engineer at RCA Records. And he worked as an engineer during the 60s with a lot of bands like Jefferson Airplane, Sam Cooke, aforementioned Love, The Monkees, The Birds. Most notably, though, he worked with the Rolling Stones whenever they recorded in L.A. And specifically, he was the lead engineer on the 1966 Stones album, Aftermath which included Paint It Black and Under yeah, My oh, Thumb, yeah. right? Oh, so yeah. that, that one yep. crushes. Well, that's, I mean, that drum sound is all over a couple of these songs, that like super reverb snare drum Yeah, thing. right, right. And I, I'm sorry, I said his most notable work was with the Rolling Stones, but in 1964, he won a Grammy for his work on The Chipmunks Sing the Beatles, <laughs> which, wow. which actually hit number 14 what? on the Billboard charts and stayed in the Billboard Top 200 for five months. I think that's just more of an indication of how a Beatle-obsessed America was at that point. They'll take anything. <laughs> totally, totally. All right, so at this point now... Wait, wait, I do have a question. Do, do you know what category that won for? It was in like the novelty. I think it was in like novelty songs, novelty albums or something just, like that. I didn't know. Well-deserved. Yeah, it was not like best female vocal or something. <laughs> best song sung by an animal, yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, so at this point, Dave Hassinger is ready for the big time. He wants to be a producer. I think he he worked with the Rolling Stones, and he wanted his own Rolling Stones act. And so you could think, you know, he's got in his head, well, I just need a group of attractive guys. We'll write a bunch of songs. We'll have them. We'll just throw some instruments at them, and it'll be a hit. And what I just described was the monkeys. They managed to come out right around the time of the electric prunes. I, I don't know how attractive these guys were, but they wound up on a couple teen bop magazines and whatnot in the early Wait, 60s. Wait, hold on. Are you talking about the prunes or the monkeys? Sorry, the prunes. They were at least uh, hot enough to land themselves on a Vox periodical. Oh, I see. I see. So, but th- this was his, ma- sorry, the way you you framed it, I wasn't hundred percent sure. Cause you also said he, he worked with the monkeys, but he didn't have anything to do with the creation of the monkeys. Right. So he did have some engineering credits with the monkeys. So at, his career continues after the prunes and during the prunes working with other bands. Should we compare the handsomeness of the monkeys versus the prunes? Cause I feel like the monkeys got them beat easily. The monkeys are way, way more attractive. Oh yeah. 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 The prunes are a bunch of goals. <laughs> <laughs> Except for like the singer, he's okay. <laughs> Mark Lowe's pretty dreamy. Yeah, yeah. They put him up front, put the yeah, other guys right. behind the amps. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so now let's jump. All right, we talked about the producer, Dave Hassinger. Let's jump over to the prunes. So who's in the prunes? We got James Lowe, who's the lead singer. This guy named Ken Williams is lead guitar. James Spagnola is rhythm guitar, backup vocals, a guy named Mark Tulin on bass, and a guy named Preston Ritter on drums. So the year's 1965, and an early version of the Electric Prunes, calling themselves The Sanctions, records a 12-track demo with a different drummer 
named Mike Weekly. The Sanctions is a terrible band. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kids, do you like fun? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Sanctions. So they recorded demo, and it's all covers, which was pretty pretty popular at the time. I mean, you look at the the Beatles albums, I feel like half of the tracks on those early Beatles albums were were cover songs. So they did the same thing. They they covered the song Boys by, well, not by the Beatles, it's actually by Luther Dixon, Long Tall Sally, Love Potion Number 9. So, so they managed to get this demo onto this acetate thing. It, it doesn't go anywhere. The band renames itself Jim and the Lords. So they're getting closer, less terrible name, Jim and the Lords, and they start rehearsing out of a garage somewhere in the hills of L.A., And in the most L.A. thing that has ever happened ever, a real estate agent is walking by one of their rehearsals and hears them in the garage. She pokes her head in and says, hey, I know somebody who's looking to sign a band. Are you interested? (laughs) She winds up introducing them to Dave Hassinger. That's ridiculous. It's It's embarrassing. Absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. Like out of a a Saved by the Bell episode or something. It's a profession known for its great musical taste, obviously. Right. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like walking. It's like me as an accountant walking by a basketball court and like and like discovering like LeBron James or something. Right. Right. You look tall. I bet you'd be good. Although to be fair, Phil, do you remember? I think it might have been the first time we played as the original chop in that garage on Fulton street, some guy came and knocked on the door like while we were playing that, and complimented yeah. us. I, was that, was that with Gil on drums? No, no, that was the proper chop. I feel like was, but I, it might've been the, the first time practice. Yeah. I think it was the inaugural practice. We never got praised ever again. I think. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, I do remember that though. It was loud enough to make somebody walk over. So that's, that, right. that's a compliment. That's good. He didn't mention his profession, but. Right. <laughs> All right. So mile marker number one that we're going to drop here. It's 1965. The Beatles release Rubber Soul, which Robert Christgau noted was the first psychedelic album. He thought psychedelia started there. And apparently that album was the soundtrack for, for the Haight-Ashbury movement in 1965 and 1966. That's a good point. You definitely like psychedelia, see, Adam? <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe, I, yeah, you're gonna you're kind of talking me into it now. All right, I might have to, we'll see. Maybe I'll change my vote. I don't know. All right. <laughs> All right, similarly, in January 1966, 13th Floor Elevators released their first single from an album called The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators. So in 1966, the term is now being used out in, in the music world. All right, so it's early 1966. Let's get back to the prunes. So Hassinger hears their demos and wants to sign them with him as their producer and them as his basically pet project. So they cut a single. It goes nowhere. However, Reprise Records, which is a Frank Sinatra's label that he created, they hear it and they they see something, or rather they hear something in the band. So they agree to sign the band and put them under Hassinger's control. Now, at this point, James Lowe, the singer, is 23, and the drummer that I mentioned at the top is not yet 18. So on contract day, the band goes into Reprise Studios in L.A. They meet a bunch of lawyers. The drummer's dad, because he's underage, reads the first paragraph of the contract, slams it on the table, walks out of the room with his son, and tells his son that Hassinger would own the name, own the publishing, own the songs, own the rights, own everything, and that he would not make a penny with this band. So he quits on the spot. The rest of the band signs, and they wind up hiring this guy named Preston Ritter, who actually appears on the album. 
Hold on a second. As this, are you saying that all this came out in the air of the room or and they still signed the contract? This is according to a YouTube interview I saw with this drummer who stormed out and I saw similar notes in Wikipedia and another like all music website that had uh, some notes on this. Yeah, not even owning the band name. I mean, owning owning the band name is pretty big. We talked about it on the Tina Turner episode, how Ike Turner owned right. the name Tina Turner. What's with everyone not ever reading a contract? They're musicians. They're dumb. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I actually, you know, I don't read half the shit that I sign, so maybe... Uh... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we'll see that that whole name thing comes back to, to kind of kick him in the ass at, at the end of this story. But anyway, so Hassinger was convinced that the... He had a lot of faith in them. He was convinced that they couldn't write material. So he hires a professional songwriting duo in Annette Tucker and Nancy Mance to write songs for the group. All right. It's now May 1966. Here's mile marker number two. The Beach Boys release Pet Sounds. Mile marker three, August of 1966, Tomorrow Never Knows is released as a single from Revolver. Lennon later calls that his first psychedelic song. And not necessarily a mile marker, but here's how you do a boy band. In September of 1966, the Monkees television show debuts, and one month later, the Monkees album is released. So that's how you do it, Hassinger. If you're going to go for a boy band, do it right. You need a TV show. One month in, you release the album. I remember that TV show being very charming, actually. The Monkees? Yes. I really liked the Monkees. I used to watch it all the time. It's great. Yeah, They they were on that bed frame going down the street. That still sticks in my head, man. All right, so uh, we're now in November of 1966. The Electric Prunes released the single I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night. The song does well during the holiday season that year. It peaks at number 11 on the U.S. charts. The remainder of 1966, the band is recording the rest of the album that they had very little part in writing. In fact, that songwriting duo wrote seven of the 12 songs on the album. The band only contributed two, and I think three were, were other covers. What you're saying is this is totally contrived. This is post-Beach Boys. This is post-Revolver. It's right in the middle. So, like, the wheels are already turning to make this happen. Yes. And the guy had a sound in his head. He wanted them when he... So they were originally, like, a surf rock band, basically doing, like, Dick Dale tunes. They're in L.A., and they had that feel. The garage Hassinger comes in and says... Yeah, Hassinger comes in and says... I want you to sound more like the Rolling Stones because that's who he worked with, but then simultaneously doing all this studio work to make it sound in this, you know, again, whatever we're calling psychedelic. I thought I read somewhere too that they, I thought it came from the guys in the band that they had what at the time was a little bit of a strange idea to not be a live act, but instead to be a recording focused project and then, and thus to focus on like the sonic textures element. And that, this would have been before the Beatles stopped performing live even. So that would have been kind of a weird move. Breadcrumb or mile marker four here. It's, it's January 1967. The Doors released their first album. One month later, Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane is released. And again, credited with being one of the milestone psychedelic albums. April 1967, the Prunes released the full album after having released that single that really crushed. The album only makes it to 113 on the Billboard Top 200. Couple months later, Summer of Love, 1967 summer. Late summer, 1967, Pink Floyd releases their debut, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Couple months later, in November of 67, Love releases Forever Changes. And then in November, the following year, Yellow Submarine is released. 
So that's kind of given you the the musical landscape of where these guys fit into, whether you want to call it the psychedelic movement, the garage rock movement, but they were in the midst of all those, but not necessarily early enough to, I would say, influence a ton of these other these other bands. Piper at the Gates of Dawn is a much more effective weirdo record with the hard panning and the echo and the non sequitur lyrics. Yeah. Right? Like it's just way mm. more effective. I think these guys are good. Yeah. They're kind of caught between two worlds because this is still extremely consumable under three minute pop songs. 12 songs in 29 minutes. Right, right. And and sorry, what did you say the release date of this was again? 67? Yeah, this was in 67, uh, April of 1967. I just looked up Are You Experienced? That was May of 67. I, I understand why you guys are saying it's not, maybe not quite as experimental and sound effect-y, but it has a lot of that heavy distortion fuzz garage rock that shaped a lot of stuff from Yeah, that. this is a little, it's like a, it's odd because it's like almost more of the pop side of things. It's almost poppier. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this Dave Hassinger wanted. I don't think he was necessarily looking to press the bounds of sonicality or whatever it was. I, I think he had worked so long with the Rolling Stones and some of these other rock pop acts that he thought I could do this. Let me get myself a let me get myself a band, own everything, and I'll just throw people at it, and it'll be a success. But to be clear, he kind of learned the wrong lesson there because Aftermath is considered the Rolling Stones record, where they sort of take their turn and start doing more experimental things and playing around with the kinds of sounds that can be on pop records in the same way that Rubber Soul is is that record for the Beatles, you know. All right, so just some quick follow-up after this album comes out. So it's in 1967, the band writes and releases a second album where they wrote a majority of the material, but there was a lot of churn in the band with members. There was no radio-ready hit on it, and the second album really went nowhere. It was more standard-ish rock. So they went to Europe to tour for the second album, and they're over there hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and Cream, and, and they're having the time of their lives. They return to the U.S. wanting to work on a third album, and they find that Dave Hassinger has hired David Axelrod. No, not the Obama advisor, but David Axelrod, a classically trained composer and arranger to put together a concept album of religious-based rock <laughs> sung completely in Greek and Latin called Mass in F Minor. Yeah, one good decision after the other. <laughs> right. A bunch of good decisions. Now, I went... Because Spotify was auto-playing this for me. And this album came up and my head popped up and I looked over. I was like, what the hell is this? It's really weird, but it's good and experimental and feels like a rock opera. It's just really out of left field. So let's, I know we haven't dropped many of the other tunes in, but let's drop one of these David Axelrod tunes here.
Yeah, so this kind of rips. I mean, it's like real stupid in the beginning, but once it gets good. Yeah, the first minute you're like, yeah, first minute I'm like, oh God, how am I going to get through this? I started like worrying. I was like, how am I going to get through it? And then, yeah, and then it kind of, kind of like, yeah, yeah. That's what's, that's what's, you know, think about doing this podcast with some of these albums, you know, you kind of have to like suffer. You're like, okay, I have to listen to this. At least once, fully through. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you say that because yeah, some songs like they do sort of like instantly induce a certain anxiety, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Can I get through this? Yeah. Absolutely, oh, man. Well, now the thing with that album is that the Electric Prunes were just a rock band, and they weren't virtuosos at their instruments. So at this point. Hassinger is now bringing in guys and, and girls from the Wrecking Crew to put the finishing touches on this religious-themed rock opera album. So now he does it again, and this is where the contract comes back to bite you in the ass, because this is still considered the Electric Prunes. So for the fourth album, called Release of an Oath, which was another religious concept album based on a singular Jewish prayer... Hassinger and Axelrod didn't even pretend or bother to include the band. Instead, they just brought in hired guns. Again, the wrecking crew. These guys come in. They produce what is arguably a crazy, complex, and pretty entertaining album. But literally none of the Electric Prunes band is on that album album. So where could they possibly getting, be getting the money for this? Yeah, I was just thinking something similar. I suppose Hassinger is in the ear of the guys at Reprise Records and says, hey, I've got some ideas. And they floated him enough money that he could just hire who he needed. Jeez. Okay. There, was a fun, there was a funny story, and I for, it might have been the guitar player who said at one point, the band did try to go out to perform this in California at some amphitheater and the guy said like within the first 10 seconds they all missed like a big hit and the next hour was just a train wreck of trying to get through one of these concept albums you know track to track and he just said it was absolutely terrible and, and thankful that there were no recording devices and anywhere nearby but I laughed at that because you've all been in you've all been in the train wreck yeah. oh yeah you know what I mean like oh, yeah. it's it's terrifying to be in it, yeah. but looking back, it's probably my most cherished memories <laughs> of playing live music. And when that train wreck happens like 10 seconds in, oh, God. I remember a very specific train wreck with you, and I will tell that story now. We were in high school, <laughs> and we were playing, I don't we were playing in some like dive bar in Maryland. And we decided on the way to the show that we would like rewrite the whole set list and like, you know, just like, go for it the way like 17 year olds do. Good for us. Yep. And I, yep. I don't remember the exact transition that we put together. All I remember is it involved another brick in the wall and where there should have been an F or a D minor, we had chose that we would immediately transition to the next song which would start with like an E major essentially. And like for mm. people at home, like this is just like, who like don't play music. This is just like eating soap or something. Like it's just not going to be good. Like your mouth, there's just like a certain context. And like, yeah. So, so yeah, I remember that. I'll never, I, I hope to never forget that. Well, if you, if, if you actually land on an E instead of an F, the fact that it's that one semitone off makes it the worst possible choice. <laughs> yeah, it's just so bad. Right, so right, bad. Right, right. Like, yeah, if you're the hippest jazz musicians in the world and you're working the change, sure. But, like, we were not. We were, like, 17 to 19-year-old kids yeah. who literally had no idea what was going to come. And it just... If I recall, I think it was the Challengers Club 
I think there was an ice storm, and I think we we may have opened with cheap sunglasses as a group of 17-year-olds playing to a bunch of 30 to 70-year-old drunk bikers. Yeah, they probably loved it. <laughs> they thought it was awesome, and so did we. I would not have recalled the, the venue name, but that was definitely correct. It's definitely it. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so then lastly, to round out the, the Prunes story, in June of 1969, the band, the actual band, gets back together, writes an album of material, performs it themselves, and they call it the new and improved Electric Prunes, hyphen, just good old rock and roll. It's mediocre. <laughs> this was one of the only weeks where I listened to the entire discography of this band multiple times. Because all the records are like 21 minutes long. Exactly, right? Well, at least this one was, so I probably hit this one like 20 times. All right, so overall feelings, now that we got the, the history out of the way with you, kind of see where they fit into the landscape. What were your overall impressions of, of the album, now with a little more context? All right, that sounds great. So <laughs> I can see which way this is going to go. <laughs> so my impression of the album is is that the songs just, it did feel like a lot, right? Like I'm familiar with this period and the sort of like crazy mixing choices there were especially like the first track which we haven't talked about too much i thought there was like an almost vocoder like use of like vocal echo along with like a hard panned guitar or organ thing like they're trying to do cool stuff but i find it in general i find it a little exhausting like they're trying so much yeah. stuff and it's just a little exhausting. Whereas, you know, Pink Floyd or the Doors, like, and to be clear, I'm not a huge like Doors fan, but like they let, they let it breathe in a totally different yeah. way that, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, I agree. I hadn't even thought of the Pink Floyd comparison, but I'm glad you're bringing it up because as an experimental band, they just have so much patience to let things play out. And this band was everything thrown at the wall all at once. Yeah. It sounded to me like they poked holes in every single speaker in the studio. It, it was just, it was abrasive at a certain point. But, and I think Marty said it in his tweet too, I did kind of like some of the songs on an individual song basis, you know, they, as standalones. But even listening to a half hour of this was a bit much. The members of the band, even in retrospect, said that it lacked so much cohesion just because it was these, this songwriting duo came in. And again, they were the hired guns. We need hits. Go write me 10 hits or whatever it is. Then they give it to the band and you have, you have a Hassinger telling him what it needs to sound more like. And it comes off very, very clearly in, in the album itself that it's like, this is just a, a mishmash. Wait, Adam, you told the story, but I think not only are these guys still touring or some version of them is still touring, but did you read the anecdote that Kenny Loggins at some point passed through this band? <laughs> no, how did I miss that? Yeah, he did. Yeah, dur during the uh, orchestral oh. religious period, he was in the band. I, I, had, read, I had read that too. So, so... So what I was reading, I was reading an interview with Annette Tucker, who was one of these duo of songwriters. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was Annette Tucker's friend that was the realtor that discovered the band. Oh so it's kind of just weird. And so the interviewer asked her this question. He said, uh, you know, the songs from this first album were real diverse. You know, was this a deliberate decision to try and catch a wide audience? And... Annette Tucker's response was, Nancy and I were told to write different types of songs for the Prunes album, so that is what we did. <laughs> Such passion. Yeah. Such musical passion and drive and vision. So it's kind of weird. It's like it's like this real real realtor drives by these like surfers, you know, surfers playing music. She had them play 
for like a surprise birthday party for her husband and invited this Annette writer and oh this guy God. who ended up producing them. And so it's like it's like this weird like corp forming of a corporation right. <laughs> to like control this so to like control odd. this band. And and yeah, it just sounds it just sounds like they just found these this garage band and we're like, hey, let's go, you know, record these songs that we wrote for you. Let's try to mold you into the next big thing. So so Okay, okay, let me paint a different picture, Marty. Let me paint a different picture. It's Los Angeles, 1967. You're rich as shit from your like chipmunks and the Beatles. <laughs> and also and also these these songwriters were at the time also writing songs for the Brady Bunch. Just yeah, a yeah. picture where that's you, clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you and your cocaine LSD buddies are just like hanging out at your pool in like the hills of LA. There's a lot of beautiful people there. Everything's great. The sun is shining. <laughs> and you make the Electric Ferns records. And for some reason... It's not a bad existence. <laughs> and for some reason, we're talking about it now. For no... Yeah, no money, no control. Yeah. Oh, no. I was thinking more that you're the producer. Yeah. Oh, the, the producer. Yeah, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Screw, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It would be guys. fun to, like, get... Yeah. Oh, it would be great to, like, get together with some friends and, like, hey, let's go take advantage of some, like, <laughs> young musicians. <laughs> <laughs> let's go exploit some teenage musicians. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we've got that other call right after this call, right? About the, the band, right? <laughs> About setting yeah. up the LLC. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exploit a code. About, about asking Johnny's dad if he can go on tour. <laughs> All right, so the electric prunes obviously fell in with the wrong crowd, and I'm not talking about hallucinogenic drug users. I'm talking about the ever-growing list of bands that name themselves after foods. So instead of by the numbers this week, I'm going to I'm going to do by the nom noms. The dumbest thing I've ever said in my life. <laughs> All right, so because I, I was thinking about bands over the years that have had food in the name, so just run through a few. All right, we got the electric prunes, ultimate spinach, Moby grape, vanilla fudge. Cream, Tangerine Cream, The Flying Burrito Brothers, The Chocolate Watch Band, Hot Tuna, Strawberry Alarm Clock, Peaches and Herb, Apple, Captain Beefheart, Grapefruit, Hunnable Pie, and last but certainly not least, Ghost Beef, whose album is available on all major streaming platforms. Vinyl, fantastic merchandise available on Bandcamp, and we'll include a link in the episode notes. Rob, I love you. Oh, um, that's your, <laughs> your check's in the mail, Adam. <laughs> And Adam, you forgot one. What's that? Bread. Oh, how did I miss bread? <laughs> if a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? Right. Wow, he's pulling up bread out of your back pocket. I, am, <laughs> I know, man. damn. That's a jam, dude. All right, so then we need to ask our listeners if I missed any. So we'll have, <laughs> we'll have an email address at the end of the show. If I missed any great food bands, you let me know. All right, gents, you ready to dive into some songs here? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> we'll try to make this quick and painless. Let's dive back into that opening track. I had too much to dream last night. When I first read this 
song title. I don't know why. The, the first thing that came into my head was, can I borrow a feeling? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is the title first songwriting for sure. And it's a little too clever for its own good. And I'll, actually, I think overall the song is a success. It's one of the better songs on the record. It starts cool and there's some cool textures in it. But in terms of the pun, the wordplay in the song title itself, you can't even tell in the vocal if he's saying dream or drink, right? It's so obscure. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's just so much vibrato on everything and tremolo on everything. His voice at one point has and the guitar, the lead guitar is doing that. The reversed guitar counter melody has a tremolo on it. There's something backing the melody, the rhythm guitar, everything has tremolo on it and it gets a little bit much, but it does define the album, I think. Yeah, there's there's backwards guitar on this one, right? Yeah, yeah right, there, right. There is some pretty cool backwards guitar on the record in general. But like, you know, you're talking about how like the lyrics sort of sounds like I had too much to drink and it's like, if you compare that directly to like the sort of very overt and aggressive messages that like Velvet Underground would release shortly after, it's like, again, it's like they're just playing it so safe. Yeah. I had too much know. to dream last night versus heroin. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shiny boots of leather. Right. Yeah, it's so it's so it's it's fucking dorky. I should have put that. When was that Velvet Underground album? Same Probably same 66, era? 66, 67, yeah, right around. I'd I'd think. Okay. Yeah, that so that was in comparison, Marty. That's a good point. Like this is corny. But again, two songwriters are trying to sell it to teenagers to be, you know, right in line with the monkeys. That is not what the Velvet Underground was doing. Oh, hell so. no. Good yeah, it point. came out about a month before this, in March of 67. Taste the whip, baby. One of the things I, I noticed about this song is the beginning of the second verse. The band Bell and Sebastian stole that exact phrasing and put it in their song called Dog on Wheels. Whoa. It's I, 100% fucking that. You, I usually, when someone makes a reference like that, I can't call it right to mind, but you nailed it. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And Rob, they also did something that I know you hate, which is when the song just stops and then starts again. I don't always hate it. I just think it's something you can you can, must use sparingly. I don't think Nancy and Loretta or whatever <laughs> whatever the names were. Maybe they weren't too. I hip read to that, that this was actually conceived initially as a soft piano ballad and that the band it, raved it up, you know? Okay. Phil, are you at all familiar with the Bigsby vibrato? Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, because they were <laughs> apparently big. They just kept talking about Bigsby vibratos on here, which is just like a whammy bar, but a certain yeah, brand. Yeah, so it's a li- yeah, it's a little different than like a whammy bar, right? It like would have been like a semi-popular like aftermarket addition to like a Telecaster or a Les Paul. So so basically it's a, it was a way to put a whammy bar-like sound in something that didn't have a, 
a hole routed in it, like a Stratocaster, has a big old oh, hole got it. that actually allows the bridge to sort of wiggle around in there. Whereas a Bigsby has like a sideways mounted spring that sort of like moves a metal bar right under the bridge. You don't get quite as profound of a whammying effect. Like you can't mm-hmm. do the Eddie Van Halen. Sure, on. right, yeah. But it's like hardcore, like Neil Young surf sound, right? Like that. And, and maybe in many ways you have probably more control over like maybe like a whole step range. Okay. Right, whereas like, you know, the Eddie Van Halen whammy bar, it's like, I don't know how the bridge just doesn't pop off the guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, I don't know how that works. It's a different instrument than the one I play. I think this was one of the songs that made some sort of chart somewhere in the world. <laughs> yes, I think this went up to number 11. This was one of the two big singles that they released. Yeah, so this one actually did pretty good. And I get it. I mean, that intro... The first five seconds is a crazy sound effect, and it it's cool. Did you read like anything about gross sales or anything? Because I can't. I keep going back to that number one record podcast, you know, where where which, which is a much better album than this that sold dismally, and they were kind of just like put out. But like this band, they just keep making more albums, you know. Like how yeah, how easy is it to get a sophomore album in L.A. in nineteen sixty six? My yeah, God, yeah. as long as you have a pulse, you must be able to get get another album deal. Yeah. I wasn't able to find any actual sales stats on this, nor was I able to find any sales stats on the Alvin and the Chipmunks and the Beatles either. I was really hoping to find how many millions. I, I can't wait till the day that I see that and I like a dollar bill. Oh, yeah. dude. Definitely. Oh, I, I, have, I have at least one Alvin and the Chipmunks album in my collection. I think oh, it's I Christmas, it's Christmas songs, though. I don't, I don't. But I do have a Frosty the Snowman record that is also Christmas songs. And, you know. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next song on our focus track. This one's called Oni. This sounds like a totally different band. I, I I like it okay for the record. This is more Crimson and Clover vibes, right? Oh yeah. This song was put on like one of those like curated Spotify weekly discover lists for me a long time ago. And I remember hearing it, I'd be like, okay, it's a nice dribby song. So I added it to like my favorites and you know, over the over the time I, it would pop up every once in a while when I would listen to my playlist. And then eventually I, I took it off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with this. I was done with it. I was done with it. I was like, hey, I've heard this song enough times that I never, never need to hear it again. And that's it. <laughs> so I have another, speaking of the lyric writing again, just to go back to the well on these songwriters, it's very shoehorned in, this name for the song. They think, I think they only, if I'm reverse engineering it, they only did it so that they could kind of pair it with own up. And own me and owe me and yeah, yeah. It right. just, like, this is, is this a real... Is this a legitimate name? I guess anything is game as a name, but this is not a common name, certainly. It's sung by the guitarist James Spagnola, so you have a different sound. Like Robbie said, it sounds like a different band. It is a different singer than that first track. And 
I think this is one of the songs where they later complained that this felt so, to your point, shoehorned in because it needed to fit the mold of the 1960s boys, you know, boy rock and roll band. We need a slow, sappy song to a girl, and this is that song. But if the whole album had actually been a mixture of kind of these two vibes, I think I would have ultimately liked it a little better because what I ended up needing, is this track two? I I can't quite recall. This is literally track two? Three. Track three. Okay, so in my first listening experience of just going through the record start to finish, I felt like, okay, this is kind of the break I was hoping for from all those effects, from all that... Oh, there is still tremolo and some of those effects in here. But from the shouty vocals and things like that, you know, but then the it's just a blip on the radar and then the rest of the material just continues on. Yeah, the this is track three was the point where the vibrato and tremolo guitars were really starting to get on me because this is the slow song and it's just like everything is it's like just stop just make it a, an acoustic guitar or a piano but it started to grate on me at this point and we were only three songs in yeah, it's pretty obvious when musicians only have one weapon in their arsenal and they just keep going to that well again and again and i know i, I think i'm using the terms vibrato and tremolo interchangeably We might get some email about that. So tremolo is a fast (laughs) variation in the volume. Vibrato is actually the variation in the pitch. I want to meet the nerd who writes in about that. Let me just say, if you you were tempted to write in about that particular correction. (laughs) Please still write in. I would love to know more about your life. By, by the way, Oni is a real name. I, I found this name database and it seemed to have kind of, it kind of peaked in popularity around uh, 1904 and has, and, has, <laughs> and has steadily declined. I see. So Oni's a 60 <laughs> right. year old woman in this song, yeah. potentially. It's going to be nice and pruned up at that point. It makes the lyrics even creepier. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next song, which was the first or the second single, the other single off this album. This one is called Get Me to the World on Time. This is my favorite song on the album, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, this didn't this didn't really work for me. It's fine. It kind of just sounds like the other songs, but I think the songwriting is even shakier, and there's even less material to make it a song. It's, it's an under-three-minute song, and there's not a lot of variation. They kind of ran through all their options at a minute in. I, I mean, they have a little breakdown at the end with a maraca, but that's it's not a lot of variation. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's just good loving, right? They kind of just... Or at least it's that sort of. I'm sure there's a name for that rhythm. Maybe some. Oh, the, the Bo Diddley rhythm, right? The Bo Diddley. Right. Yeah, cha, yeah, cha, yeah. Cha, 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 cha. I had no yeah, idea totally. that that's, that was yeah, like the one. Yeah. a well-known thing. Yeah, that's very cool. So for the listener, Bo Diddley had a song called Bo Diddley in which he plays this very, very famous and familiar rhythm that we'll drop here. And you can 
obviously recognize that has been done a million times in a ton of different pop songs. What a smart move by Bo Diddley. Yeah, what a player. The The song I always think of for that rhythm is actually Not Fade Away, the Buddy Holly tune that the, yeah, the yeah, Stones totally. and the Grateful Dead also did. So I, again, I, I just assume these guys are like way into drugs based on, you know, the sort of timing and the sound of the band. I just assumed this song was about cocaine, you know, based on the lyrics. But I guess these guys are straight edge. So what is this about? And, they didn't, about? Write, and they didn't write the song. Oh, and they didn't write the song. So yeah. I think it's just cleverness for cleverness's sake. That I think that's kind of running through a lot of this. It feels like that title first songwriting. How can we put wordplay in? The yeah, the lady that wrote it said that it's a play on get to church on time. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's as psychedelic as it gets, man. I dug the big snare hits at the beginning. That was what made this song stick out to me. There, there's some really loud hits that I thought sounded pretty cool. But now that I hear, Rob, you're describing the song a bit more, I think I like it a little less <laughs> now that I'm realizing it really doesn't do anything. That's why I'm here, Adam. <laughs> no, you know, I, I also wrote down on the first listen through before I had researched a band or anything that I did get the sense of surf music a little more out of this one. So when I learned that they were previously a oh, surf yeah. rock band, yeah. And I do like a lot of, or some, I guess, surf rock. So, yeah, there were cool aspects to it. I just feel like it wasn't meaty enough for a whole song. It was more like half a song. So there was a theme of them playing around in the studio a decent amount on this album. And the opening sound on this song is actually the producer, Dave Hassinger, groaning into a microphone that's running into a Fender guitar amp with the tremolo, big surprise, cranked up. And then they played with the speed of the tape and reversing it. So that, that intro note is actually a vocal going through a guitar amp. That's a cool sounding thing, but it just sounds like any other instrument put through a little tremolo effect. So. Studio magic. Like, but you know what I'm saying? To my ear, it's not even interesting or weird enough for me to look up a fact like that. Well, yeah, because like you've heard a synthesizer, right? <laughs> well, not even that. Like they could have just played a cello and gotten yeah. the same note instead of all this crazy crap and they stood on their heads and they jumped up and down. It's like, well, you could have just gotten the same sound. <laughs> if the sound was, you're right, Rob, if the sound was something crazier, it sounded like a spaceship taking off or something, they'd be like, oh, let me take note of that. But it just sounded like an instrument. It reminds me for some reason of us, or me, uh, recording vocals without my shirt on insisting that you'd be able to hear it. <laughs> you can hear it. <laughs> I can still hear it. All right, we're going to move on here. The next song we're going to talk about is called Sold to the Highest Bidder. Can we turn down the auto harp, please? <laughs> I was going to say, is that a mandolin? or? A, or a, so know. I was really interested in the same thing because the speed and the length that they play, you would have to be a monster to play that fast note straight for three minutes and not miss a beat. 
Uh, they, they, they missed some beats. <laughs> Without your hand falling off. No, I, I read that it was actually a mandolin. They played it much slower and then sped it up to be in key with the rest of the instruments for this song. Oh, that's like an old Les Paul uh, technique. That's funny because I had read that the producer guy grew up a big fan of Les Paul. So that Okay. Kind of well, the Beatles, I read the Beatles did that on the Hard Day's Night guitar riff. That's a sped up thing. I think I saw that on the McCartney, Rick Rubin documentary. Yeah, I think uh, both Tomorrow Never Knows and Rain go deep down this wormhole to the point where they're like, they're not even doing full octaves. You know, they're, they're singing parts in different keys and then turning the tape And then, spin, and right, right. And, and that's specifically why the drums have like a really sort of cool effect. I'm thinking of Rain specifically. It's because it's like not being played in the time it was recorded in these are cool innovative ideas you just didn't you just didn't stick the landing the song's just not the, the content's not there yeah. actually i mean this song's okay for me it's odd it's right odd, like yeah. it has this this interesting greek i guess greek flair uh, yeah maybe? i can't tell if this is like my favorite or least favorite so <laughs> well it's definitely not my least <laughs> it's nowhere favorite, between yeah. the race to the bottom <laughs> <laughs> but i wanted to point out that there is this technique that maybe most lay people don't don't take notice of, but once once you start listening for it, you'll hear it in a lot of recordings in a lot of different genres, which is doubling your vocals. And they do it here consistently. The downside of it, when it's done tastefully, I think it's a great little subtle effect on vocals, and it's been used on in countless songs. But the downside of it is it just sounds like the guy's shouting at me, like a group of people are shouting at me. You're right. There's a lot of screaming on this album. Now that I listen to the vocal on this, right, and that's this song is nothing but that. So it's kind of a vocal style, I suppose, more than more than the effect itself. But it's amplified. The problem is amplified by this doubled vocal. It's a general problem with the record, but I kind of really noticed it here. And we talked about mixing at the at the top, but here's an example where, yeah, that mandolin. I just guessed that it was an auto harp, but I guess it's a mandolin. Also, there's castanets or some other kind of percussive element in yeah. it. Yeah, they're yeah. both too yeah. loud. I get that you're oh, excited. Totally. Way too loud. Totally. Way, way, way too loud. Yeah. You're excited because you used a weird instrument in the studio that you didn't get to use on any other songs. And so you decided to crank it way up. All right. So so this is for Marty in, in our race to the bottom. We are next going to listen to the last song on our focus list. This one is called <laughs> The Tunerville oh. Trolley. And lived his life by the golden roof. It chopped down timber for his view. In Danny's day, his shoes were made by Buster Brown. He'd hide and roll his knickers down. The world was square, it wasn't round. In Danny's day, he'd ride the Tunerville trolley, the Tunerville trolley, tooting on his licorice stick. Song is just goofy. I mean, I think they should have held. Whoever wrote this song should have held on to it. Probably could have sold it to the Kinks in like the mid to late seventies, <laughs> and it would have done great. Oh, that's high praise. I said that it sounded like it was written for Sesame Street, and then I remembered that I loved the Sesame Street recorded material, and it's way better than this. <laughs> Somebody recently turned me on to a record called Grover Sings the Blues. Oh, had, that's awesome. And he has a song on there called I'm Blue or I Am Blue, maybe. And that's material is definitely better than this. <laughs> yeah, I know someone who like his go-to karaoke song is like a Kermit the Frog song, you know, that he sings about like 
peace on earth you know a lot of a lot of like weird like muppet cartoon uh record collection talk on this, on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so just to quote some of the lyrics on this one <laughs> they're not good they're not good light on us oh by g by gosh by golly <laughs> Hmm. Was, you can only say that in a Christmas song, by the way. Somebody wrote that down. <laughs> right. Yeah. To deck the halls with boughs of holly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Christmas songs, I feel like the, the vocal delivery, I kept... Do you remember the Rudolph Christmas, the animation, the claymation one? Sure. And there's the little elf who is a wants to be a dentist, and he sings this song where he says the word misfit, but he pronounces it misfit, and it's the most obnoxious <laughs> thing in the world, and that's all I could think of while this guy was was pronouncing all these words for Tunerville Trolley. It was just terrible. Yeah, like, in a way, this is, like, exactly what, like, Frank Zappa and Steely Dan are making fun of when they do songs like this. Like, they're both, like, hearkening back to an old age and directly disrespecting. <laughs> but these guys are trying to pay homage to it for some reason. One quick note here. There is a 1940s composer named Raymond Scott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote the song that is used in cartoons whenever there's a warehouse. It's by a guy named Raymond Scott. He has an album called The Tunerville Trolley. And I don't know if this was supposed to be a, a reference back to that, but I think we're going to wrap it up here. My, I did have one final note to really... Put, put, a, put a bow on this. Rob, going back to the Sparks episode, we both watched the documentary on Netflix, and you had mentioned that there was a gentleman in the documentary who was the producer of one of their albums. And while producing the album, he thought it was amazing. It was the album A Wolfer in Tweeter's Clothing. And he, the guy says to his wife, honey, we're making the most amazing music. If this doesn't go anywhere, I'm quitting my job. Do you remember that discussion yes, yeah, yeah. On, sure. the, on the Sparks yeah. episode? That producer was James Lowe, the lead singer no. of the Electric Prunes. <laughs> he, he quit music after that Sparks album failed and went into TV and movies. Right, because the, the line was, he said, oh, if this, doesn't, if this isn't a huge splash, I'm, gonna, I'm in the wrong business. Smash cut, right, right. I'm a plumber now. Right, right exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, that was the line, yes. So he wound up getting into the movies after that failed, so... We're putting putting a nice a nice bow on on the story there. All right, so now what we do at this point in the podcast, every episode, we throw it around the studio to get the votes on whether or not you think this album actually needs to be heard before you die. Let's throw it over to Rob. Fuck no. This is <laughs> <laughs> no. This is this is in my mind the definition of inessential. I understand that this may have influenced some folks. But it's did it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't. Yes, no. I'm I. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. I came to the conversation willing to be convinced of how important this record is in the lineage of records. You gave us all those great breadcrumbs, Adam, and told us all the records that came out kind of around this. And I just don't see a line running from this to anything else. I think they bit off more than they could chew ultimately, and they were caught between what the producer wanted and what the band wanted, and all that makes for a mess. Phil, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a definite skip for me. 
this is the sort of thing I expected to hear more of when we started doing the podcast. Like, I think it's a really challenging listen. I think if you're a music nerd, like, you know, you should give this a listen. This is a challenging listen, but like must is definitely not a, a word I would use to describe what you should do with this record. You do not need to listen to this. All right. That's two no's so far. Marty, are you going to be the start? Are you going to be the so, wave that yeah, comes in so, and saves this? Yeah. So, so, you know, Phil, Phil Spector invented the wall of sound. David Hassinger and the Electric Prunes invented the wall of shit. Because <laughs> this album sounds like total, total garbage crap. No, you know that I cannot recommend anyone listen to this album. But I got to say, it's been one of the f- most fun to talk about. So this is Adam, and I'm really happy I did have to listen to this album. I'm even happier that I read the story and just how insane all of their career was as well as being introduced to those two really crazy religious-based albums that apparently have also been sampled in a decent amount of hip-hop. I read that that was people go to that as a well of, of samples. Yeah, the, it's this track two, like halfway into track two, there's like a drum break that I feel like I've heard a million times. The okay. song's called like Bangle, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right around like minute, one minute, two minutes. Like I'm just like, oh, yeah, heard that many times. However, that is not enough to get on the list for me. Yeah, it was a tough week, so uh, it's going to be a no for me. So Electric Prunes, I'm sorry to inform you that you're off the list, at least for us. So, all right. Now, we are going to throw things over to Rob, who's got his hand in the mailbag and... I'm guessing we have some some uh, some anger coming from our Pixies fans after that very contentious episode. We do well, actually no, this isn't about Pixies. We're we're oh, okay, gonna get to right. that um, at some point. It's it's been coming in fast and furious, so we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, so thanks, Adam. Here we are over at the the mailbag. I got a missive here from BT from Minnesota, and they write, "I've binged pretty much all your podcast over the past couple months, and while I really like it, I have to admit I'm getting nervous in all caps, meaning about some of the inevitable future episodes. This is mostly uh. this is mostly because your polar opposite reactions to the more produced, some would say overproduced punk or punk adjacent albums." versus the ones that are less produced. I'm really nervous what will happen when you get to some of the stuff that I consider iconic. I'm not sure what you're referring to here, dear listener, but we like plenty of late 70s material. I feel like we're misunderstood a lot, guys. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> right? We we ultimately I don't understand how. We ultimately voted for <laughs> Gang of Four. Shit, I think we even managed to convince we voted for the Velvet Underground. I don't know. Um, please tell us more about what but you're what referring to. What if they're to. talking about like Enema of the State by Blink 182? Oh, like, what if they're talking about Dude? Ranch, they seem to right? be referring <laughs> to late 70s punk. So I kind of, my mind okay. went to the gang right. of four. Like New York Dolls? Maybe. Was that considered punk? That was too early. That was a little too early. Yeah. Okay, but they do go on to reference a very old episode. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read this one. So they say, also, on episode seven. Wow. Seven, guys. Devendra Bonhart. You guys were very dismissive of swans. If you recall, the producer. (laughs) The animal or the band? No, there's a band called Swans that's like a noise rock project that the producer, I use the word loosely, of the Devendra Bonhart (laughs) record was somehow a part of. And I think we made fun of it pretty thoroughly. I won't pretend that you have to like No Wave. First of all, I don't even know what the fuck that is. (laughs) But hey, I'm, op- I'm open to learning. I'm open to learning. Just just saying. 
But Swans is so much more than their early no wave stuff. They've run the gamut from no wave to industrial to goth rock to post rock. They're one of the most interesting and varied bands out there. I just want to tell anyone who might have listened to that episode that Swans is at the very least an incredibly creative and impressive project. Again, I'm not mad. I enjoy the podcast. Thanks for everything. Awesome. BT, thank you for the feedback. We appreciate yeah, that. Another Again, great mailbag. Yeah. Even though we're somewhat confused, but uh, I'm going to go listen to Swans. I'm going to go Google No Wave and figure out what that is right. first. <laughs> I don't actually even remember. I, how could we possibly remember what we said on the Devender Barnhart episode? Frankly, it's been quite a long time, but I, I will go revisit that. I promise. I'll, I'll speak for myself. And that's a good call out for anyone out there. And, you know, to be fair, we do appreciate people who artists who are creative and pushing the envelope, even if it's not sort of for us or things that we actually like to listen to. So if someone's out there trying to do new things, you know, that's pretty cool on its own. Don't forget, folks, you can email us. Let us know how we're doing, what you disagree with, what you agree with at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And if you're super lazy, we got a new thing we're trying out. You can go to sayhi.chat slash 1001 and you can leave us an audio message we'll have a link in the episode notes as well so you don't have to remember that url but if you're lazy like me and you don't feel like actually typing an email you can just use your voice send it to us it'll transcribe it for us and we will be able to download your thoughts into our brains i'm gonna throw it back over to rob because he also has the albinator this week so we can get our homework assignment thanks so much adam yeah tom is not with us today and in fact he signed away his rights to the albinator unknowingly <laughs> even though his father advised him otherwise so we're gonna spin this thing it's been here buzzing and acting tremulous in my corner and let's see what our homework is to listen to for next week without further ado drum roll please we will be listening to the specials self-titled album the specials all right this is like a like a ska band. I think it's early ska, very early. I, I think I've never heard this, but I do believe it got a call out on the Elvis Costello podcast episode because I think Elvis Costello is the producer on this one. Oh, okay. nice, very cool. cool. Well, that's going to be a new listen for me. Hope it's a new listen for you as well. So next week we are going to be diving into the specials. We hope you all have a chance to listen to it. That is going to do it for us today here at One Thousand One Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. I'm Phil. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I'm Marty. Absolutely, man. Haboosh! Haboosh!